Hi, this is Carrie with the Promise Podcast. Today, I have John Robinson with me. He is a former mental health case manager with a bachelor's degree in social work. He also has experience and education in conflict analysis, criminal justice, and psychology. John is a connection coach and consultant and has worked with male perpetrators as well as male and female victims and survivors of narcissistic abuse. Welcome, John. So happy to have you on today. How are you? I'm I'm doing all right. I'm kind of tired. It's been I've been even though I've been relaxing a lot this week just from a long month, you know, I think I'm still feeling just the after effects of that long month. How about you? Oh yeah, I <laughs> I'm feeling you there too, definitely. Yeah. Um, well go ahead. I'm really excited to have you on and just getting to know you just has inspired me so much. Um, Thanks. That's learn... awesome to hear. Yeah. And just to really learn more from like a male perspective on this, this topic has just been so refreshing. Yeah. Well, I can honestly say that, you know, just you and the other people I've been connected to through the living well um, have really enlightened me on a lot of these issues as well, you know, because mm-hmm. just, I, it was something that, and I've talked with you about this before, about how I was not, this was not something I always was super, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't something I was always super open-minded about, you know, the, mm-hmm. the concept of narcissistic abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. It's, it's really difficult um, for people to, to understand and grasp yeah, everything about, you know, just, just to, and like you said, just to kind of be open to having more of an understanding about it. So John, give us a brief um, background on, on who you are and, and what you're doing right now. Sure. Absolutely. So um, yeah, like, like I said, this was not always the way I got into this type of work. I was not always super, open-minded about it. I wasn't, I've never been a closed-minded person, but it was definitely a learning process for me. As Carrie mentioned to all those who are listening, I am someone who, uh, I'm someone who has a background in social work. And, um, you know, my journey through, (laughs) my journey through the education system was a bit long and windy. So at different times, I was a conflict resolution major. I was a psychology major at one point. But I didn't I didn't finish those degrees and I eventually settled on social work for my bachelor's degree. And um, I had a couple of internships, you know, in my academic career. One was at a probation and parole office where I actually worked with a lot of perpetrators and assault cases, um, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom had, uh, you know, were perpetrators in domestic violence issues, um, almost all of whom were men. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were a few different types of perpetrators that I would run into you know, some of them were, you know, the typical chronic abusers. That was a big portion of them. You know, a lot of them, the people who just, they, they don't stop, you know, like <laughs> that mm-hmm. kind of thing. The people who just abuse over and over again and were pretty remorseless um, and that have those tendencies of people who, you know, are narcissistic or even sometimes antisocial from the more sociopathic and psychopathic sense, um, just in terms of those tendencies. But uh, I can only speak from a observational perspective rather than a clinical perspective because I'm not a clinician but Mm -hmm. along with that you know I I eventually got a I got an internship in a group therapy program at you know a community mental health center where I met a lot of different types of people 
And eventually that place hired me full time as an administrative mental health case manager for adults. And in that position, I met and encountered a lot of, you know, victims, survivors and perpetrators, both men and women of, uh, you know, domestic abuse. And that was a, my main role. My main job in that role was to connect people to resources. But a lot of times you find yourself being kind of a human Swiss army knife because even though your main thing you need to address is tangible needs that people need help with, whether that's housing or, you know, legal resources or access to public benefits, whatever it may be. Sometimes they have intangible issues that they're facing that they can't quite get to the tangible needs until you get over that intangible hump. And so I found myself using that, finding that clinical training nine months that I had, you know, coming in handy, even though I was not a clinician. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that popped up a lot was, you know, and this was especially true among women that I worked with in when I encountered these cases were women who would make these claims of like, I'm being monitored, you know, I'm being watched. I'm, I'm, Mm. you know, and through cyber technology, my car is bugged. My phone is tapped. And a lot of these women coincidentally would be diagnosed with, you know, delusional disorders or disorders related to psychosis. And for Mm -hmm. those who don't know what that is or aren't as familiar with those terms, psychosis is basically a clinical term that defines a break from reality, you know, or, or at least reality is the rest of people see it. And that can, the two main ways that manifests are through delusions and hallucinations. And delusions are typically more beliefs and ideas that are breaks from reality. Mm-hmm. Hallucinations are more manifestations of those ideas, such as hearing voices or seeing things that aren't there, or sometimes even feeling things like tactile hallucinations. Um, and now, I didn't always see these symptoms in these people consistently. And as I said, I'm not a clinician, so I can only speak observationally. But when you work in, I worked in this position for four years and over four years, you see a lot of things, you know, and you work with a lot of people who have these symptoms on a more consistent basis. And a lot of these women who were diagnosed with these symptoms had sort of like, you know, it, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily always given specific diagnoses. It was more things like unspecified psych- psychosis or unspecified delusional disorder, things like that. And yeah. a lot of, yeah, exactly. And a lot of this was attributed to paranoia, these claims they would make about, you know, like I'm being watched, you know, my phone's tapped, you know, all this stuff. I, right. I think my finances are being interfered with. Yeah. And so in the beginning, I just took that at face value because, you know, I figured I'm not a clinician. I'm not, I'm not a diagnostic professional. I'm not a psychiatrist. You know, I'll trust the diagnosis. And if it says that these people are delusional and they're saying things that I've never seen or experienced and mm. that seem beyond reality to me, then they must be beyond reality. Um, Interesting. Yeah. John, did you just kind of stumble upon this area of work like or was it something that inspired you to to go into when it comes to um like the casework that you were involved in it was a little bit of so I didn't go into my casework was not primarily for that population it was just something I would encounter but it was definitely something that I always would always kind of tug at me you know, whenever Mm. I would be faced with it, that and homelessness, those were the two things that really tugged at me. And yeah, because it's just such heartbreaking issues. And over time, you know, I started hearing these claims from more and more people, especially women. And 
I started seeing patterns in their claims and, you know, he hearing similarities in their stories. And I was, I started wondering if there was something there. So I gradually mm -hmm. started just kind of entertaining the claims they were making, you know, like right. just to kind of rule them out, you know, like, so at least I can say we went down that path and we found out it wasn't accurate. And then wow. sometimes, yeah. And sometimes we go down that path and I'd find, oh, there's some truth to this, you know, like, right. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, it's incredible. So I know that you're kind of going into this a little bit, but what for female victims in particular of narcissistic abuse, um, which is kind of like what you're touching on right now, what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen in them being able to receive the help and care they need? Learned helplessness is a big one because the abuser, from what I've found, you know, in, in my experience working with these people and these women wow. is that they, the abuser wants them to think there is no escape whatsoever. Mm -hmm. There's no way to escape. They want them to feel powerless. They want them to think they're God, you know, and in a way they yes. are, it's like a cult of two people. Like right. it really is. It's, 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 and, and because the way that some people, that, that some of these women talk about it, it's like, well, what if they have people here? What if they have people here? Cause I've tried to help these women get to other states before and encourage them to go find family in other states and things like that. And I'm like, well, he definitely has people here. <laughs> right. We don't know if he has people here. So, you know, you can stay here and have this happen. And the other thing is there is some truth to the break with reality. I found because the goal of gaslighting with these abusers, at least just in my, from what I've observed is that they want, these women to think they're capable of anything. So these women, even though there will be some truth to their claims and a lot of truth to their claims, and there will be evidence that I will find of their claims sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, there's some things that are a little far-fetched and that I don't find evidence for and that we go down that path. And it's important to rule those things out because the goal is to create that confusion and to create that sense of they can do anything, you know, like, like they, they can, that's the goal of it. And, I was talking with someone who, you know, is a client of mine maybe a week or two ago, and she was so caught up in the, the cyber stalking thing. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but that's been something that I've really seen ramp up over COVID. And that was the most common mm. thing that I would see attributed to paranoia and delusion by, wow. by other professionals, the cyber stalking element of this. And one of the things that, you know, I would, I was talking with this, you know, woman who was kind of hesitating on whether or not she should leave there was still a part of her that was hanging on and you know i was saying to her and she was saying well what about this why is this happening in my tv why is this happening to you know my phone is my phone tapped what does this symbol on my phone mean why does this come up and sometimes she'd be sending it to me in text messages and you know at first i was like you might not want to send that to me in text messages if you think you're being watched and she's like oh no i want them to know that i'm sending this you know like and <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and i said Honestly, the answers to those questions at this point don't matter. What matters is, aren't you tired of asking these questions? Right. Like, aren't you so tired of living that. this way? Like, learned helplessness. Would you say that this learned helplessness that has been ingrained in them, like where the perpetrator has convinced them that they can't do life without them, um, that they have to constantly question their reality, their identity, 
and keeping them in this constant state of confusion, would you say that's like the main, like, like probably the number one issue per, um, prohibiting these women from, from receiving help? I would say that as well as the fact that, you know, these stories, uh, this is the, especially when it comes to the cyber stalking element, because cyber technology is something that is moving faster than society is able to keep up with in a lot of ways. And, you know, Mm -hmm. cyber technology has a lot of good, good uses and a lot of bad uses. And just like almost anything that is a new form of technology that comes into our world. And over the past five, 10 years, this has been a growing problem. And over COVID, when people were even more trapped and dependent on cyber technology, I just saw this ramp up more and more. And actually, it was this past year or two over COVID, when I started really starting to, to listen more to these cyber abuse claims, because I started finding more evidence of them. I started hearing more patterns in the stories of, 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 that these victims were telling. And then eventually when I started talking to survivors who would tell almost the exact same things and describe the exact same identical things that would happen to them, that really made me realize there was some legitimacy to this. Now that doesn't, I'm a big believer in necessarily we should, I don't think everyone's entitled to be believed and I don't think, but I also don't think we should ever dismiss anyone when they feel like they're in danger. I think we need to listen to people regardless and fit and help them sift through what is reality and what is not, because there's so much confusion there. And this gaslighting that happens where it creates that level of confusion when people dismiss them, especially if it's professionals or authority figures, it creates almost a systemic gaslighting and it doesn't come from a bad mm. place necessarily. You know, it's not because these people are bad people or they're really bad at their jobs. It's because right. anyone is, you know, is, is, is vulnerable to the idea of denial. It's such a horrible reality to think that this could exist and that anyone could fall prey to it that we don't want to believe it exists. Right. Well, and you know what, John, I'm really, I can really relate to what you're saying because as a survivor now of narcissistic abuse, I Mm -hmm. even still to this day struggle with some of the paranoid thoughts. Right. Like if I see his car, like, um, not his car in particular, but if I see the same car model as him driving down the street, I'm like, is that him? You Mm -hmm. know? And I still kind of have this sense of needing, feeling like I need to look over my shoulder. Um, And then even online on social media, you know, I'll see an unknown account and I'm like, who's that? You know? Absolutely. Yeah. it It creates this kind of like sense of, paranoia like you're saying i can totally understand how these victims of of this type of abuse can can be misdiagnosed in that regard and i can't claim whether they're misdiagnosed or not but my main thing is because i'm not a clinician or a diagnostic professional but my main thing is i think that's almost missing the point i I, i've talked with you about the fact Mm -hmm. that i think that the main i think that the abusers actually create confusion among professionals and authorities when we lose ourselves in mm. whether or not these ideas are coming from delusion or not, rather than asking the main question, which is, are these people in danger or not? And if they are, we need to get them out of danger. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the thing. The first thought that I have, if I see, you know, his model car, I'm like, is he, is he, am I being followed? Am I, right. 
you know, is there, and you have, when you start thinking like that, you, it kind of is a domino effect. Then you start thinking of all the things that this person could be capable of and other things that could be happening because it just kind of, you spiral in that thought process. Interesting. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, you know, and, and then that's where the feeling of helplessness comes from. It's like, no matter what I do, I can't escape, you know, I can't get away from this. Mm. And, you know, and and people do, and I've, and now since I've, the way I got involved with living well actually was through, um, you know, meeting a survivor who, you know, was, was friends with Nicole through, through my podcast, you know, and I, I talked and I mentioned how I kept seeing cyber stalking more and more. And she's like, Oh my God, you know, that happened to me. Like, let's like, like, you know, let's talk. We need to talk about this. And that's how she connected me to the living well. And that's how I got connected to you and to Nicole and to all these yeah. other people. And I, I actually was introduced as the cyber, as a cyber abuse consultant. And I said, that's, <laughs> not, <laughs> I said, yeah. that's not what I do, but that's on my resume now, you know? And <laughs> Hey, you know what? I mean, there's a lot of information to be divulged about this and it's, it's interesting because something that's kind of coming up for me on this topic is that when you think about like the whole domino effect of um, the paranoia and the, the cyber stalking issue and all of that, um, like it kind of goes back to, and I know that you've already kind of shared about this, like mm-hmm. the gaslighting and the the um trying to keep people in this distorted sense of reality right and denial and confusion about who the abuser is the the victim of the nar- narcissistic abuse has by this time when she's come out of it and she's going into recovery there's all these remnants right of what right. she endured that are still playing out in their minds and in in their real, in their sense of reality. Exactly. And during the abuse, I mean, like you said, the abuse is so horrific. I mean, yeah, you know, women are being beyond the physical abuse. Yeah. It's like we can put a finger on the physical abuse, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But when it comes to the emotional abuse, it's like so much bigger than that. It's like, getting woken up at two o'clock in the morning screamed at when you think that, you know, you're safe and can sleep through the night. It's like just knowing that this person going away to work or sleeping is the only time that you can have a sense of peace for a period of time before you're, you're exposed to, to the chaos again, whatever that is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and and, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. Even during those times, like where he's away or he's asleep, you are constantly in this like high or like, I want to say high vibrational, but I guess like more, it, it is, it's very intense. It's like this high vibrational, like anxiety, just simmering, you know, yeah. just waiting for the next attack or waiting for the next lecture or waiting for yeah. whatever it is that you're, the victim is enduring from this person. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the men who had and when I in my brief stint as an intern in probation and parole were, you know, I was given a decent amount of autonomy to work with some of the, you know, clients across from me. You know, a lot of the men who were in these situations, I mentioned the chronic abuser, but some of them were just people were just men who were in bad situations who reacted and snapped and they were very remorseful about what they did. And they ended up, even though they were the ones who ended up being the attacker and the perpetrator, they ended up being the ones going after the protection order because they didn't they didn't want to put themselves in a situation where they do something like that again. And to me, wow. that's a yeah. And to me, that's very different than this brand of abuse that we're talking about here. This is manipulative, controlling. In fact, the word manipulative, if you look at it, you know, I'm decent at Spanish, you know, so I know a a decent amount of Spanish vocabulary. Um, Manejar and mano are words in Spanish that are based, they're related to your hand, you know? So Mm. manipulate is from the same root. It's the idea of having your hand in everything. So like Mm. a narcissist, in the way they, their manipulation really is having their hand in every aspect of your life and everything you do, because you are an extension of them in a lot of ways. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really powerful. And, and that's great that you differentiate between the, the person who exploded and, and just, you know, wherever that came from, um, he happens to be remorseful and and then genuine remorse produces long-term change and boundaries being set and things like that and so then that's how we can kind of tell the difference between someone who's remorseful and someone who's chronically manipulative and abusive right right? yeah because that's more of a pathology you know like yeah I mean you know, I, I know I've done things in relationships in the past that I have not, that I am certainly not proud of, but I would, I never felt justified in them. You know, like I, I right. always felt like it was something wrong. And, you know, I've been through my own mental health journey. And the reason why I got help is because I did not want to be a toxic presence in people's lives. But the difference mm-hmm is that when someone does these things over and over and over and over again and takes no action steps whatsoever to change, that's the real sign of someone who is just pathologically, you know, pretty much entirely incapable of change is someone who never takes an action step towards it. They might talk a lot of lip service about it, Mm. about how they'll be different. And they might use, and they might do a lot of things to get you back on their good side. But until the real action steps happen, there's no evidence for it. Because kindness for narcissists, from my observation, oftentimes is leverage. It's not really just a thing that they do to make you smile or something they do out of remorse. It's leverage to either get them back on good footing with you or or to get you on their good side in the first place, basically. Right. And you know, John, what my ex would do was he would... I remember him going through domestic violence classes and Mm -hmm. anger management. And he was like, I'm doing all these things, you know, to get in a better place so I can have more self-control and learn how to manage myself better in this relationship and in our marriage. Mm -hmm. And so what, how would you, what would you say to women when they have a husband or intimate partner who's saying, you know, I'm doing all these things, you know, for us and like kind of 
actually doing things to show them that that they are sorry per se um and and then coming back into the relationship and being stable for a period of time but then falling back into the same patterns of behavior and sometimes and actually in a lot of cases even ending up worse right well because are they doing it for brownie points that's the question i would ask you know because if they're doing it for brownie points they're going to be mad if you leave if i if i beat the crap Mm. out of anybody out of anyone who who was my partner and they left me you know i would feel i would be sad even if I, and I took action steps to change and they were like, no, I still don't feel comfortable. I'd definitely be sad, but I would get it. You know, like I'd understand, like, I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> like I wouldn't like, I'd get why they wouldn't want to be around that. Like that would make right. sense to me, but I would I wouldn't feel entitled to forgiveness. Forgiveness t- to me would feel like a gift from them, you know, mm. but if there's a sense of entitlement there, like, well, I did this, so you have to forgive me. You know, like, you have to forgive me. You Like, I, I did this, I took these action steps, I did everything you wanted on the checklist, you know, like, I checked all the boxes. That's not, you're, they're not really doing it genuinely. They're doing it because they want something out of you. It's, it's, it's leverage, again, like I said. It's that, like, right. uh, when I've, real love will basically, you know, from what I've learned over my limited 29 years of life, <laughs> <laughs> Real love will, will is is very selfless. You know, it's it's mm. I will take this risk and I will do these things so that I am a better person for everyone in my life, including you, the people I love. But if it doesn't work out and I don't get what I want, all right, I'll be better for the next opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. it's not this. Yeah. You know, it's not this sense of attachment. It's it's a connection rather than an attachment. And, you know, I've, I've, I've mentioned this a lot of times, you know, where the, the idea of, you know, connection is like holding hands and attachment is like being handcuffed. I, I really think that's true. I mm. think that it, because yeah. it it's a connection is something that you're, it's not that you're okay with losing it. It's that you'll survive if you lose it, you know, whereas an attachment is yeah. more like an addiction. Interesting. I love that. That's, that's a really good point you make. So, so women could really look, look at that and go, okay, am I, do I have a genuine, authentic connection with this person? Or is it an attachment that is unhealthy and somewhat oppressive or controlling me in some way? Right. And I, and I've never been with a narcissist, but I've certainly been in a relationship that was mutually addictive. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, like the kind of thing where you that. just can't quit each other, you know, and it wasn't that, you know, I don't think that that partner was necessarily a bad person, but, or that necessarily I was a bad person to my core, but it just was a bad situation. You know, it right. just what, and I don't think that things should have to get to the point where they're abusive for us to feel justified in, you know, in, in not in stepping out's a bad term because that can have other connotations, but in basically just, you know, leaving it, you know, I think that, that, that we shouldn't feel abuse should not be the only, you know, thing that indicates the end of a relationship. I've, mm-hmm. I've had healthy relationships end for extenuating circumstances. And it's not that I didn't fight for them. Like me and that, me and, and those, and 
the individual in, in a healthy relationship might fight really hard for the relationship, but the circumstances are so extenuating that if we feel ourselves starting to sour on each other, we'd rather it be a happy memory than it be you, and leave open the possibility of reconnecting in the future without being attached to that possibility. You know, that's the key because that's the hard right. part. Um, and then trying so hard to make it work to the point where the extenuating circumstances lead to resentment that make us sour on each other. And then it's a bad memory, you know, like that's, there's so many reasons to end a relationship. And I'm not saying we should just quit at the first sign of trouble, but at the same time, we shouldn't make ourselves human sacrifices. Hmm. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the different, that's the difference between someone who is a healthy individual and self-aware and someone who is narcissistic because the person that you are is sensible and can differentiate between. (laughs) 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 And, and yeah, you know, I mean, can you can differentiate between, okay, this is becoming unhealthy or something's happening here where, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a logical step in making a decision moving forward about this relationship rather than the narcissist who might feel the need to gain more control over the situation, more control over that person because they feel a shift. Right. Um, or someone who uses anger and abuse to justify like you were saying um to justify any any way to get out of the relationship or whatever and 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 probably i think women can have a tendency to do this too in different ways um so yeah i think that's that's a good differentiating viewpoint between someone who is sensible versus someone who's not sensible because as we know the narcissistic abuser they're not using logical means to maintain the relationship or to um, yeah or to manage the relationship in a way that's healthy yeah and one of the things that's interesting that you mentioned is you know this idea of like maintaining control is that I've had some clients, you know, in the past, especially at my old job, who would say, he doesn't even love me anymore. Why is he doing this to me? Like, he doesn't care about me. I said, and mm-hmm. I said, it's because you're property. Like, that's what you are to him. I'm, yeah. I know that's a really harsh way to put it, but it's, uh, that's just the only, the only way that someone would ever want to hang on to something that they, that they don't have that they don't see any value to other than what it means to them as if it was property to them. Right. And, you know, and it was a hard thing for her to hear, but she kind of got it. I said, it's not that he, I said, you're right. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you, but he Mm -hmm. cares about what you are to him. He cares about what he cares about. He doesn't want you to be anything other than, you know, attached to him like that, that, because that, that, that messes with his ego if you're not. You know, and that kind of goes back to that sense of entitlement that you were right. talking about. Yeah, exactly. Narcissism is pretty much all it's a very egoic disorder. And I mean, I mean, narcissistic personality disorder, like pathological narcissism. It's a very egoic disorder. It's very attached to ego. It's it's almost yeah. like a 
like a severe overattachment to ego. And narcissists, and there's a, there's a difference between people think narcissists are incapable of empathy. That's not necessarily true. It's just that their ego always overrides their empathy or almost mm. always overrides their empathy. Wow. That's very interesting. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like they um, might feel bad about what they do, but it's like, well, I kind of had to feed my ego. I mean, that's not necessarily the way they consciously think of it, but that's kind of how. That's the way they kind of justify and um, feel in, entitled to behave and live. I, I actually that. had a client and this wasn't related to any sort of relationship issue, but I had a client who I worked with for a, for a few months and it was one of the most challenging cases I ever worked. Um, and she, she had been diagnosed with a few different personality disorders at different times during her life. At one point, someone had, there had been a psychiatrist who had asked her, has anyone ever diagnosed you with narcissistic personality disorder? And honestly, like I read the DSM traits and she fit almost everyone. Like Mm -hmm. it was, it was that textbook, you know, and, and, you know, and she, this wasn't a relationship issue, but just the way she would talk about things, there was a sense of self-awareness to an extent, you know, mm-hmm. like, 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 to, like to some extent, but it was, it was always overridden by the fact that she needed to be special and this, and this strong, you know, just extremely overwhelming sense of entitlement that she had. It was, it was, ve- and yeah. that's what made it so difficult to work with her is because she wanted everything now. Like she wanted it instantly. Like she wanted her problems fixed instantly. And I was like, well, that's not how this works. You know, you, it's a process. And she's like, well, I should have the best treatment, but I can't because I'm this and that. And I'm like, well, you have to make it. it it's that, that's a long, that, that would take a whole other podcast episode unto itself. <laughs> even if I went into it, it might not be appropriate because even if it wasn't violating HIPAA, it might still be ethically questionable to go into too much detail about that. But it really, it, the defining trait that I have observed in people who have narcissistic traits, if not narcissistic personality disorder, um, is this sense of entitlement. And I've had points in my life where, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the Malkin test, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's, it's basically, a, there's a like mini version of it that you can take online. And I took it myself because back in the fall, someone said, they didn't say that they thought I had a personality disorder, but they said, you've been acting a bit more narcissistic lately. And I was like, huh. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, let me take, let me go online and take one of these tests. That's by this Malkin guy. Who's like a, like one of the leading figures on narcissism. Um, yeah. And he defines narcissism of, of, along with three main parameters. There's echoism, healthy narcissism and extreme narcissism. Healthy narcissism is basically healthy self-love, which is because narcissism, the term comes from the Greek myth of Narcissus, where he's looking at his own reflection and he falls in love with his own reflection, dives in the, <laughs> dives in the, in the water, you know, uh, seeing his own reflection and drowns. I think that's how it goes. Um, wow. and, yeah. And so basically the idea that it, so a certain amount of self-love is healthy. But if you go over a certain line, it gets into grandiosity. And sometimes it's very hard to tell where that line is unless you really get to know someone. Yeah. And they have this expectation, like you're describing, um, of special treatment everywhere they go. I noticed that's how my ex was. Like Mm -hmm. everywhere we went, he expected to get the best 
of everything, like for our room to be upgraded, like if it wasn't done the way that, that he expected, then he would become angry and frustrated and it would affect his mood in a major way if he didn't get the, the treatment that he was expecting. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it, it, so much of it is related to entitlement. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think that, you know, um, is really interesting about just personality disorders in general is that there's so much, over, especially cluster B personality disorders, is mm. that there's so much, what was that? Oh, I was just going, yeah, oh, like agreeing. I, that's, that's a, that's a really complex yeah um, there's diagnosis right the cluster b yeah there because there's so much overlap between them there's four main cluster at least in the dsm-5 there's four main um cluster b personality disorders that they list one is um you know um, one is borderline personality disorder another one is narcissistic personality disorder another one is um antisocial personality disorder, which mainly covers, you know, traits of psychopathy and sociopathy. And then there's also histrionic personality disorder, which I think that we might need a name update on that one. Because that's so oh my gosh, that's so funny. You're saying that I was just saying that last night. Right. Same exact statement. Yes, we need a name update on that one for sure. Right, right. (laughs) And, And a lot of the thing about these disorders, the one trait I've found in common is that they need attention Mm. now maybe not so much antisocial personality disorder because but there's definitely a sense of like borderline personality disorder it comes more from a place of a wound you know like an inner wound like a like a like a like a fear of abandonment and histrionic personality disorder it's very much about you know theatrics to get attention narcissism it's more from a place of ego that the, that the desire for attention and entitlement and special treatment comes from and antisocial personality disorder i'm a bit more reluctant to speak on that because that's just so complex that you know and i haven't encountered as many people with those traits at least not no at least not people that i can identify clearly with those traits that are either psych- psychopathic or sociopathic but that one is I feel like we sometimes use these terms very interchangeably when there are subtle distinctions. And I think it's important that we understand the differences between those. I'm not going to go into too much what the differences between those are. I would advise people to ask, you know, a more qualified professional about those things or, you know, another great resource that has been great for me. And I know you like her as well as, you know, um, med circle video well dr romany as well as med circle videos in general um, are great resources for those types of things those are definitely very informative um youtube channels there to to um connect and get more information from yeah absolutely so what do you think medical and mental health care professionals should know or understand better in regards to the effects of narcissistic abuse? I'll, I'll say, I'll expand this to, if you don't mind, to just domestic abuse in general, especially just, I think the way that abuse affects its victims, you know, for the, and people who specialize in this area will know more, will, will, this will sound like I'm preaching to the choir, but for people who aren't as specialized in this area, you know, or or who haven't encountered this as much, 
I think the thing that people need to understand is that abuse makes people crazy. Like it, <laughs> it does. Like it makes people crazy. And I don't mean it makes people crazy in the sense that we should dismiss their claims. But I mean, in, in the sense that these, this idea that these people are inherently crazy to begin with, I think is flawed. And I, I say crazy. I, I say crazy. I know that's a very crude term, but I'm saying that because I, I'm saying that because I think that crazy is a dismissive term, and I think that's the attitude that a lot of people have toward this population is this attitude of dismissal when it comes to these claims that seem very far fetched. You know, especially when it comes. I think no, one thing is we need to update and evolve our views on what the capabilities of cyber stalking are. Multiple people I've talked to about on this issue, whether they be victims or survivors um, or other people who are in the field have said that they would not be surprised if there was a black market for this type of cyber monitoring mm, and things wow. like that. Like they, like I can't, that, I don't have any proof of that, but there are people who, that speculation has begun. I had that thought and thought I was crazy for having it. And then asked some people who were survivors and victims and even some people in the field whether that was a plausible thing for us to even look into. And they said that should be looked into because, the like, how often do these people have a friend that helps them, you know, with this tech stuff or a friend that helps them monitor? And who would do these heinous things without getting paid? Like, right. Really? And like, I think I, that the narcissistic abuser is very capable of of orchestrating that, of, of paying someone to do that for them. Absolutely. Because where there's a will, there's a way, you know, people like us who are more like empaths, empaths and, and narcissists, or even sociopaths and psychopaths can, pre can present very similarly mm -hmm. because they both have that, at least in my experience, they both have that kind of ability to analyze people, to break people down, and a little bit of that charisma as well, you know, and that magnetism. But it right. comes from two totally different places, even though it looks very similar. Um, that's why it takes time to figure out whether or not someone is, you know, which side of that spectrum they're on. The people in the middle of that spectrum, they don't necessarily have those traits. This is more the people on the end of those spectrums. But one of the things that but absolutely, the, the element of cyber stalking, we need to update our education on because these things are happening and these things that used to sound like they were from sci-fi movies or that the government can only do <laughs> is basically child's play now compared to what the government can do. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's wild. And, it's, and even these tech companies, like the stuff that they can do, um, like our phones are listening to us all the time. It's not that hard right. to believe that someone could just, people can download, I, I'm kind of reluctant to say this, but I think that just, I, I'd rather be more information transparent than information hiding, but people can download spyware off the dark web and put it on someone's phone. They can do that now. Yeah, it's really scary, the things that that I'm learning about this whole other side of of abuse, really. Right. And, and control. And I've, you know, another thing I've noticed with to elaborate more on the mental health professional side of things. Right. Um, I've noticed that I've actually heard doctors say, even doctors getting out of the session with my ex and I, mm -hmm. that the way that they were gaslit by by the perpetrator, mm -hmm. they themselves feel like their head is spinning coming out of a session with them. Absolutely. I feel that I, I don't, 
I feel that way with when I'm working with the victims and the, when I'm working with the victims sometimes. It's with that client I mentioned earlier who I said, aren't you tired of asking these questions? The reason I went there is because trying to make sense of everything she was saying, I could not keep track of what was possible and what wasn't right. at that point. I couldn't. I couldn't figure out what was. I, I didn't know what the capabilities here were. And I didn't. And some of the things I didn't even want to dig further because I was very scared about what I would find. Mm. Um, but, you know, like when but I the main point was clearly she was in an unhealthy situation. And does anything matter more than that? You know, like, I think right. that's where we need to focus on. And the abusers want us to focus on these other little details about, well, is this happening? Is this happening? The point yeah. is, is this person in danger? The abusers are fooling us, too. Yes. I don't think a lot yes. of us want to admit that, but they are to some extent. They really are. And I, I'm glad that you're bringing that up because that that is there. They abuse everyone that they come in contact with. Right. Because that's right. how they work. They're constantly trying to manipulate and control the situation wherever they are. So, yeah, I think doctors should be become more aware of that, um, too, because I remember. And, you know, I'm just speaking from a personal sure. perspective, but I know that so many of the stories are very much the same, that my abuser was just straight up lying to mm -hmm. counselors about me um, and, and acting as though I had done something. I remember one counselor saying to me, the picture he's painting of you as, is as if you were going out and spending his money frivolously, like you had no regard for his financial situation, which was totally not the case. The oh, and they'll find ways to create evidence too. Yeah. And the truth was I was only allowed to use our joint account for right. gas and groceries. And that was all I ever used it for. And I you're not allowed to have your own account. Huh? Because you weren't allowed to have your own account, I imagine. Well, I was. Okay. Um, but it was the the own account that I had was um I there was no money going into it. Like, mm. you know, when, when I had to, to become unemployed, you know, I, I could only, I had nothing coming in. So I could only live off of the joint account for the means of which I was able to use it, which was gas and food only. Right. So if I needed anything else beyond that, he had to provide that for me willingly, right? Sometimes he wasn't, sometimes he was. Yeah. So yeah, so there was a lot of financial control right. as well. But yeah, the way that he was painting me out was like I was this serial spender with no evidence. Actually. Right. These were just claims he was making. Um, but and he would do it in such a subtle way too. Mm -hmm. And so he would just, it's kind of like, and that's what that's what brings up these questions, I think, for counselors and mental health care professionals, because they try to paint a picture of you that's not true to reality. And I remember he also would, would kind of insinuate that, um, that I was like unfaithful or right. that I was doing things to be promiscuous and like changing my clothes, mm -hmm. um, and 
in between seeing the counselor and him as if I was dressing provocatively for my counselor. <laughs> well, that's the, that's a big crazy fear. Claims and just accusations, these constant accusations that were just blatant lies. I would not have been surprised if that was a legitimate fear and he had just decided that you were doing that. Because that is such a shot to the ego of a narcissist that like that's that's a massive especially a male narcissist and even just a man in general like <laughs> like that that like if we're if we if you, if a man is very wrapped up in his ego we will have a tendency towards jealousy just i've experienced that like when i've met when i've met with a lot of different men just you know just just knowing a lot of men throughout my life who are wrapped up in their egos you know whether that's professionally or personally you know mm-hmm jealousy always seems to be a common theme among them and one thing that's interesting is that there is one guy who when i was working in probation and parole who i would i would usually try to because first thing they do in the initial meeting is i get the police report you know i read the police report and i would try to kind of because you have to work with this person you have to cooperate with them you have to kind of get them to trust you a little bit and make them feel like you know you have to make them feel like you're 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 there for them, you know, right. regardless of how much you believe or not. So I would try to do that as legitimately as possible by trying to find as much common ground between their story and the police report as I possibly could. Because these mm-hmm. are perpetrators, right? And, you know, they, it was all under different circumstances. And sometimes it was easier than others to find common ground between their story and the police report. And then I'd at least have a framework for what the, you know, you know there's always three sides, one person's side, the other side, and the truth. I'd at least have a, a framework for the truth, you know? Right. And there was this one guy, though, who came in, and I could not reconcile anything with him. Like, nothing. Like, <laughs> I was trying so hard. And, you know, just, uh, I'm sorry just if this nothing is... nothing was adding up. Right. I'm sorry if this is triggering for people, but there was something about, like, marks on, you know, his partner's face. And I said, okay, well, if you didn't do anything, I said, and I'm not, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But, you know how did she get these marks on her face? You know, just asking a legitimate question. And right. he's like, I might've given her a smooch on the cheek. And I, I was so bad. <laughs> I was so bad. Like, cause I, I was like, do you really think wow. I'm that stupid? Like, so I was, I, I was so frustrated cause I couldn't figure out anything. And so, but then I looked in the system and I saw he'd been in there for something like this before. And I said, look, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I'm not saying you did it. I'm not saying you didn't do it. But here's the bottom line here. You know, because this guy, clearly we're not going to appeal to him from an empathetic perspective. We're only going to appeal to him from self-interest, right? Right. And self-preservation. So I said, you're in the system for the, and you've been in the system for this before. So regardless of what did happen, if she calls the cops, who do you think they're going to believe? And he was like, Oh, okay, I see what you mean. I was like, right? Okay, I said, so make sure so make sure you cooperate because, you know, regardless of what happened, things don't look good for you if she calls the cops. Right. And he and he kind of started to cooperate a bit more after that. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, there's some people that like that's the type of person who does this type of abuse they feel entitled they feel and they think they can get they think other people are stupid a lot of times like right (laughs) like how stupid do you think i am that that i'm reading this pretty pretty rough police report 
And that's the, and I'm going to believe that conclusion. Yeah. Like, it's insane. Seriously. I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's interesting that they, they think that people don't see what's going on because eventually these types of people, no matter how manipulative they are, they do have a pattern about them where they eventually get found out. Right. More times than not. Would you, would you say that's true? I would say eventually, yes. You know, yeah. although, although, you know, I don't know, because I think that there's so much, I think this is so much more prevalent than I ever realized. So who knows, you know, like this, like maybe this is more prevalent than a lot of us realize. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of it going on. Definitely. But I know that you've heard this from Nicole and, you know, just working with, with so many of these, um, women who've experienced this, um, that it, it does kind of seem like they all go by the same playbook. Like the, yeah. a lot of their behaviors are in their abusive behaviors are so similar. It's almost, and they like use the same phrases right. and they do kind of the same manipulative tactics in, right. it's in a every pattern. relationship. It, it's a behavioral pattern and it, it does fit kind of a profile, which is what started to make me question this more and question whether or not this needed to be looked into more. And what, and one thing that's done for people, one strategy that they teach mental health professionals at varying levels of qualification um, for people who are diagnosed with, um, you know, paranoid disorders or delusional disorders or psychotic disorders is this, this concept and technique called reality testing, where, mm. look, you're not going to, you're not going to convince someone that their delusions aren't real. You know, you're just not, especially if they're in the moment hallucinating, having one right now, you know, like yeah. that's not going to work. You have to enter their reality and work in the framework of their reality in a way where you kind of you know, diffuse it to make it less, um, uh, less scary for them in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I think we need to go a step beyond that in these situations, because I don't think that these people that, that, that I think in a lot of cases, and I can't speak to individual cases, but I think in a lot of cases, these symptoms are not brought on by, you know, like they're not, I don't think that these people are necessarily always, inherently suffering from psychosis just because they have psychotic minds. I think a lot of this is a break that people have, you know, like, and, mm. and I think that, you know, reality investigation is a bit more important. Like I've found that I've had a lot more success with these people when I walk them through these things, like not in the sense that like, okay, think about this logically. Why would this be happening? That is not as successful for me as when I'm like, okay, you think that something's happening with your taxes at the IRS. Let's go to the IRS office and figure out whether or not that's accurate or not. Oh, I like that. So you're walking through it with them. Right. And now I was in a mobile position. So I was more able to do that than say a therapist would say like a, a sit down therapist would or anything like that. Case management is a very, is a job where you can be mobile. You can go to different destinations and things like that. But yeah. And that way it's out of the way, whether it's if, if, if you find out that there is something fishy going on with their with their taxes, then you investigate, then you get the IRS to look into it further. I went there with this one person. Turned out it didn't seem like anything was wrong. So and she was discouraged because she was like, I, I just I knew some, I know something. Wrong. I said, look, I'm not here to prove you right. I'm here to help you find answers, you know, like, right. like and whatever those answers are, because. 
he's trying to confuse you, like, regardless yeah. of, of what this is. And I said, just because you're wrong about this doesn't mean you're wrong about other things. I, this doesn't mean I don't believe you and I don't believe your concerns are valid, but it means that I, if I didn't think your concerns were valid, we wouldn't have even gone there in the first place. Right. You're just kind of going through this step-by-step process with them to help clear up their um, reality to help give them more clarity really right you know help them I'm, I'm trying to be a resource for them in the sense that i'm not trying to walk them through like now why would he do that to your taxes what benefit would it be for that that's ridiculous not that kind of thing more no let's go to the irs and see if anything weird is going on or see if there's a more conventional explanation and there was a more conventional explanation because there was something strange going on and they had a conventional explanation for it which was that with the pandemic they're backed up on a lot of things and you know and, and 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 that made sense to me didn't make as much sense to her because a lot of these women they want to be right because it's like if i'm not right then it means i'm crazy no it doesn't mean you're crazy And you know what I love about that is that you are actually helping walk them into like a a process where they're learning how to kind of gain their power back, right? Because how to kind of take the reins back so that they can gain control back of their lives by, okay, let's go figure this out. And walking them in into a process of learning how to do things for themselves again and figure things out for themselves and get to the bottom of it. And instead of being paralyzed in fear and this constant paranoia, which is where the abuser wants them. Right. And, 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 and it's hard to get them to stick with it. It really is. And that's been the hardest part and why I have not always been successful in getting people out and helping people get out of these situations because ultimately they have to make the decisions to take steps forward and whether or not they think it's safe to take steps forward. And it's hard to get people to feel safe doing that. It really is. Um, So I can only do so much with that. And especially considering the fact that it was only until the past year or two that I started really taking these claims seriously. I have a lot of regrets about the fact that I didn't start taking these claims seriously sooner. Doesn't mean I think I should automatically believe these claims, because like I said, any gaslighting's purpose is to confuse reality. So there is going to be some reality confusion. But we have to help people wade through these confusing waters to find the answers. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is important for women to know in how they can receive the right help in their situation? I would say, because this is something that, you know, I've been trying to figure out myself in a lot of ways, because I think I, I, one of the things that I felt bad when I started working with the living well in a lot of ways, because I think they thought I had more answers than I did. And really I was like, no, the reason why I'm an asset is because I'm one of the few people asking these questions. Like, you know, right. and like I'm not there. I, I said, I've tried to find experts on this and they're almost non-existent, you know, wow. like it's 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 wild. Like on, on these new phenomena that we're seeing in domestic abuse and in narcissistic abuse, this is a very it's not a new problem, but it's right. It's a new like it. it it's something that we're that's having a moment, I guess. And, mm. you know, 
So I'm trying to figure out those answers myself. I, I, the only things I can think of is one thing is finding ways to give women access to alternate technology that they can use as like burners and things like that. I think that would be a massive help to give women access, find ways to give women access to, you know, to cyber sweeps, to, you know, burner phones, burner programs, anything that they can use that will give them autonomy from any sort of surveillance. Because honestly, I think the surveillance in a lot of ways is more dangerous than even physical abuse because you can escape physical abuse if you're not being watched, but you're trapped if every move you make is being watched. It's like that. It's like that. <laughs> it's like that police song, except it's not funny at all. Like it's. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's such a good point. It's like it's it's. I think, like you said, it's this narcissistic abuse phenomenon, so to speak, is having its moment. Do you think that it could be because? we're just bringing more awareness to it. People are speaking out more, you know, because we have more public platforms to do so and bring awareness to this issue. I would say so. And I think that I've been talking a lot about, I've been, one of the things I've talked about on my podcast is, you know, this idea that I think we're starting to move, move into a post shame society. Now, a lot of people hear that and they think that's a bad thing. I, that, but I like to make a distinction between shame and regret. I think regret is mm. perfectly fine. I think that's a very healthy emotion. I'm not associating regret with anyone who's been in these situations. That's a different thing. But, you know, I, regret is a healthy emotion that we use to us to assess our own selves and assess our own choices and basically mm-hmm. decide and prevent ourselves from repeating mistakes. Whereas shame is what will other people think if they know this about me? And I think we need to get away from that emotion. And I think as a society, we're starting to as we're more vulnerable. Now, there are some downsides to that. But I think for the most part, we've, you know, and, and you're, you're one thing I've said before, you know, and you and I are both very spiritual people is I don't think shame should ever be a part of faith. You know, mm. I think that's a very, I, I think that we should come to, I think that we should never feel like we're not good enough for God. And I think that's a very dangerous right. emotion. And when we start feeling that way you know, regardless of, then we, if we don't feel like we're good enough for God, we don't feel like we're good enough for anybody. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. And, and, um, and to, yeah, I think shame with victims of narcissistic abuse weighs heavily on them. I think there's so much shame associated with the abuse that they've endured. And that's, that can be a, a trap too right and mm-hmm. really where the enemy wants us because absolutely yeah he he wants us to be feeling the worst about ourselves like like you said like we don't you know if 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 we're to attribute a man or husband being um you know loving us the way christ loved the church right um i mean we're kind of attributing him to we're kind of being subjected to a godlike form mistreating us so then how easy would that be to to view ourselves in god's light as being shameful right and so much of abuse is based in the concept of shame like abuse is almost built on shame it's almost like the foundation of abuse is shame yeah wow that's 
So true. So is there anything else you think women should know about how to get the right kind of help? Like, um, so you think helping them maybe look for answers and ways to protect, to protect themselves better. Um, like in a, from a, from a cyber perspective, yeah, um, because that that's huge, right? Because like you said, that's probably the number one way where they can just be trapped with whatever they're doing at all times. So that's right. kind of like, do you think that's kind of number one, what that they should be looking for? I think that I, themselves? Because I, I think that I think right now, you know, I, I think that I guess after getting out of it, because right yeah. first they need to remove themselves and 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 talk about it and share and not be afraid to, to, um, to get it out there and, and continue sharing because eventually they will be heard by someone, even if they're not heard by one person, they'll be heard by another. Right. Absolutely. And I would say reach out to any local women's center that is near you because somebody will, if anyone's going to listen to you, it will be them. And they are a party that is meant to help these things. They're not going to be in the pocket of your abuser or anything like that, because I know that there are a lot of women out there who are, who try to think, who, who I've, I've dealt with women who have even said, well, what if my abuser is associated with this women's resource center? You know, like that's, it's mm. that ingrained in their brain. Like how, like how, you know, like how far is, is his reach? And, you know, I would say that, you know, definitely reaching out to women's resource centers because there are more and more women's resource centers that are starting to pick up on the cyber abuse thing. I know that there are some in Rhode Island that are starting to pick up on it. Um, and I think even the domestic abuse hotline is starting to pick up on that problem a bit more as well. It's something okay. that start that more awareness is starting to happen. Um, you know, any women's resource center near you, whether it's a county center or a shelter, will be able to point you in the right direction and they will try to help you find protection. Also, it, once you get away, look in, or, or once you have a place that is, if you, if you do not live with your abuser, get a PFA. Get a P, get get a protective order. Like, do it. It. I, I. I know so many women who feel. I met so many women and men. You know, this is a message to men out there too. Get a protective. Anybody who is being abused and you are not dependent on your abuser for a roof over your head, get a protective order because okay. that will, or at least look into it. Because yeah, a lot of people feel like I don't want to get them in trouble. I'm sorry. Screw that. Like you're, you're, you could be in danger. Like get like, right. Like you could be in danger. Don't think for a second that you might not be in danger and you want to be free. Love should not feel like a prison, a prison. It should feel like home. I, I talked to my men's group about that to someone in my men's group about that today. He's going to go on a, you know, he was talking about going on a trip and I, you know, and I said, focus on when you come back, whether you're, whether you feel like you're going home to your partner, or whether you feel like you're going back to jail. Like wow. that should tell that. you, yeah, that should tell you whether or not you're in a healthy relationship or not. If you feel like you're in jail and you feel like you're constantly anxious and you're walking on eggshells, you're in a bad situation, protective orders, even though they might not always deter people, it's definitely better than nothing because they, if they don't abide by those rules, they can go to prison. Right. There's consequences. Right. right? Exactly. And, and we know that a true narcissist is only going to respond to consequences. Right. Right. Absolutely. They're not going to, they're going to 
cross over your boundaries. They're going to cross over any threats that you, you offer. But if you have consequences in place, that's the one thing that is, is like you said, either going to detour them. If not, there will be consequences to pay for their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, do you put the domestic abuse hotline in the show notes? You know what? I don't, but I'm definitely going to, in this episode, I have it on my website. Okay. Um, I, I should have it more places. I do have it in a lot of places, but I need to probably be putting it on all my YouTube videos too, because I think it's, it's really important for women to have resources wherever that right. is. Because that's the main thing is these women need resources. That's the thing. Yeah. And, and, and some of these resources, I'll be honest, they don't always, some, they exist more in certain areas than other areas. And that's part of where the field needs to catch up, you know, just when yeah. it comes to domestic abuse and mental health and things like that. But any sort of, these women are disempowered and men in these situations are disempowered. They need to be re-empowered to the extent. And the main way to do that is with resources and with support. And because isolation is the goal of the abuser, because that makes anyone feel unsupported. Right. Absolutely. So how would you encourage women to move forward in their recovery um, in hopes for a future healthy relationship? I would say, like I said to the one client, while you're in this situation and you're trying to get out, don't focus so much on what your abuser is doing, where, where, where they went wrong, where you went wrong, what happened with the relationship. Focus on getting out first. I used this analogy with you before, Carrie, where, you know, when when firefighters put out a fire, they don't sift through the debris to figure out the start of the fire while they're putting the fire out. They put the fire out first and then they sift through the debris, you know, to figure yeah. out what the cause of the fire was. Once you're out of the situation, then you can start then, then you can start making your like the recovery situation, sifting through why you may have gotten into this relationship what may have gone wrong and how you can prevent yourself from doing it in the future more of a priority. The one thing I would definitely say is make connecting with yourself a priority. This is the part where, you know, my, my, my idea of connection coaching comes in, you know, connecting with other people is great, you know, and I would say solidify the healthy bonds that you already have mm. once you get out and also reconnect with yourself. Don't rule out dating necessarily, but definitely, I would say, put it towards the bottom of your priority list, because I imagine it, a lot of people who get into relationships with narcissists are codependents, you know, and that goes yep. for women and men. And the tendency for a codependent is they need to be with somebody, you know, and right. un until you figure out how to be with yourself and connect with yourself in a way where you can take or leave being with somebody, you know, it's that's going to be a problem where, where you'll settle for situations that aren't good for you. And you'll, and you, and you might, you might start to realize upon your self-reflection that you really were in love with someone filling a role for you rather than actually who they were. You might just be in love with being with somebody rather than actually have been in love with somebody. Wow. I, I really like that point that you make about being with someone because of the role that, that they fill for you rather than really loving them. Right. And that's huge. Wow. I mean, because 
I think like you were saying, a lot of codependents, they kind of will go jump from relationship to relationship, not all, but some, or not all, but a lot is what I should say. And, and then when that happens, they're kind, they're trying to, um, kind of heal some of those old wounds. So whatever that person is fulfilling for them to help them heal those areas, um, there it's, it's not an act. It's not a real connection. Like we were talking about, it's more of an attachment, right? It's, it's this desire to be validated and chosen and, you know, all these things because we don't, we don't choose ourselves, you know, like we, we don't, we don't like ourselves enough to choose ourselves and, and choose and choose ourselves like as we are, we, we need someone to validate who we are, but that's not what we really need. We need to, you know, a, a relationship is an, is a separate entity is two people. And then the relate is something is a separate entity created between two people. You know, it's, it's the, it, there's the two parties in the relationship and then there's the relationship itself. And that relationship is the connection. It's not two halves of a whole. I, I mean, I know there's, there's sayings like, you know, my, my other half or my better half. And, and those are, and, or in Spanish, you know, media naranja, but like, <laughs> that's half, or, <laughs> that's my half orange, you know, which, oh, that's cute. But like, that's not yeah. real. You don't really want another half. You want two holes making something even greater than themselves that transcends themselves. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And from a a spiritual perspective, um, I always encourage women to, to look to God for, for that intimacy that you're desiring, because that'll really help fill so much of that void and that invalidation that you've been feeling because he is our validator, our redeemer, our you know, he, he helped, he's the one who designed and created you uniquely independently to be who you are. If and we so just go ahead. claiming that identity in him with, with him. If we focus on our divine image, then there's no way we can't love ourselves. Yep. Amen. Yep. Well, John, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all that you did, because this is just so powerful, like all of the information, hearing this from someone who's just worked really, really deeply and intimately in this environment, um, you know, just from kind of from the outside, you know, is just, is so interesting to kind of get into all of all of that side of it from your perspective and I really appreciate your time thanks I appreciate you having me on you know this was great you know I always enjoy sharing my perspectives I'm <laughs> I'm kind of used to being in the other chair the interviewer chair which is so this yeah this was a little <laughs> weird for me but I liked it I liked it That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, John. We really appreciate your wisdom and your transparency. No problem. Thank you so much. Have a great day.